Welcome, pudding people, to another episode of Everybody Loves Pudding with your host, Ken Seymour, and your co-host, Richard Geiger. Hello. We have an extra special episode for you today. We are going to be interviewing a gentleman by the name of Andrew Graham. He is a very interesting uh, individual with a rich history. Tell us about our guest. Well, uh, this young man is a very well-known fixture from a media standpoint here locally in Bloomington. A little background, he graduated from IU in 1978, started working with the Herald Times as a a part-time news uh, sports reporter in 1982, and had a career with that newspaper for 35 years. Did a lot of stuff, did a lot of stuff for IU sports, covered IU basketball, um, covered IU football, covered IU soccer. Also did a lot of stuff locally here, covered a lot of high school basketball, high school football, that type of stuff. Um, covered a lot of it, covered a lot of it so well that in 2013, he was actually inducted into the Indiana Sports Writer and Sportscaster Hall of Fame. Very impressive and a very, uh, very interesting and just absolutely nice gentleman. Now, uh, as we often do when we are in the process of putting an episode together, we will test our sound levels to try and get the optimal choices. We had some new equipment to test and um, we uh, just immediately started into the conversation a little earlier than we intended to and realized that uh, because of the way that we did things, we were going to need to kind of stitch some stuff together. So there, there are going to be several, uh, several instances where there may be some uh, incongruities, inconsistencies between the places that we started and stopped uh, our conversation. Yeah, we started just kind of trying to figure out uh, on this extra microphone that we got. Wanted to make sure the sound was good on it, and instantly we're still we're hearing good stories. So we got to make sure that. We're, we're recording all of the good stories that we're hearing. We talked for a long time, so we had to have a pause kind of a little bit later on. So mm-hmm. we got a few chunks in there that we're just going to put together into a nice, big, congruent uh, conversation. Hopefully you all will enjoy the conversation as much as we did. Yes, and hopefully we got a, a lot of good stories from this that we can relate to a lot of folks. I think we did. Every township had a high school. And sometimes they didn't even have a town, but they had a high school. And that was their gathering place. And without a town, I mean, you didn't necessarily, you know, I mean, back then, in terms of entertainment options, it was very limited. Most families might have a radio in the home, but there weren't any movie theaters they could drive to. There, there weren't any things like that. What they would look forward to was that Friday night when you know, because they're out there in the middle of February and amid fallow fields, bored to tears, because most of the time, farm, you're just working your ass off, but not necessarily that in the wintertime. You take good care of livestock, that's about it. And so you look forward to that Friday night in this agrarian society where you go to town or go to where the school is, maybe get your hair done, 
eat at a restaurant for the only time in the night, and then you all adjourn to this beautiful, well-lit, warm gymnasium where you can gossip with your neighbors and watch the boys from your neighborhood play the boys from five miles down the road. And if you understand... The same that, sociological equivalent of a church. Yes, very much so. And it was something you look forward to every week, every Friday night, and literally the whole community game. And they still do it some places. It's, not, it's kind of a dying subculture, but it's, it's still here. Mm-hmm. And, and it's great fun to actually go experience it. You know? and, um, I would tell anybody, you know, even if you're just a nominal sports fan, Indiana High School basketball is like the best entertainment value around. It's five bucks, and you can go get in touch with your inner Hoosier, see these communities come out, and and it's good coaching. It's it's a it's a good level of play in most places, and it's fun. I mean, you know, it's it's pretty good basketball, and some places it's extremely good basketball. It's a very high level of play. That's why all the schools still come here and recruit. Per, per capita population, Indiana puts out more basketball players than any place, still to this day. E- even white guys from the country schools can go play in college because they're well coached and they, they play AAU ball, they play against good competition, and they develop because they care about it. They, they, they still, it's still kind of the big thing. So it isn't like it was in the heyday in the 40s and 50s and 60s when before the colleges really got on television and kind of took it all over. And Bob Knight showed up and all that kind of stuff. You know, before the Pacers, before any of that stuff. It was, it was, and I played in the tournament, and I could tell you. And I should probably just be doing all this on the podcast. <laughs> but, 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 but when, when we went out, Carmel was the big bully on our block in terms of schools. Mm-hmm. And the old tournament, everybody played in one tournament. It wasn't a glass basketball. Oh, yeah. You, know, you mean... had to go play the big dogs. So we dreamed our entire lives of going to Carmel and whooping them. And we damn near did. They beat us in double overtime uh, my senior year. But I'll, I'll always remember coming out for the final warm-ups and then the player introductions. And we had a drill where we used two basketballs. And Steve Rich had one of them and I had one of them. We're coming up the tunnel. And Carmel's gym had about 3,500 was the capacity at that time. And you couldn't buy it. I mean, they, they, they sold half of the tickets to Carmel. And they sold the other half to the other five schools in the county who all hated Carmel. So... The, the, the crowd was evenly split. And so when we came up the tunnel, it wasn't discernibly cheers or boos. It was a Just wall noise. of sound that impacted us physically. It literally knocked us back. Mm. And it's hard to explain to people how big a deal it was. Mm. Our entire town, I mean, you've seen the movie Hoosiers, you know, back up there it's flat as a pancake. It's like the land of the endless cornfield. And you can see our entire town, headlights to the horizon, following us down to that game. I mean, it was cool. It was cool to grow up with that. I mean, I grew up in northern Indiana, and we, the, the, the town that I was, I graduated, my graduating class was 71 people. So we, 68. So we were in that small town, and I played in the, the last year of the not class basketball so tournaments. Yeah. So well, we, that was the that was the last year. So um I, I went to school at Culver. Oh sure. Uh, not the military yeah, academy. No, no Culver. Do, but, do, do you guys do you, do you know a, a guy named uh, Joel Kruger? Or the family Kruger from around in that area? The the name sounds familiar but one I one of my best pals from college but he was from Culver Community School. From community yep, yeah. yep. So we exactly. we went to we always they, they always did the sectionals at 
Plymouth. Yes. And Plymouth, of course, com- a major power. B- bigger compared to our school. I mean, it, it's the size of the schools that you would see maybe even around here. So, like, there was a lot of people yeah. that went to the school. They had a lot of money. There's not a lot of names associated with Plymouth. Um, they had a long time coach named Jack Edison who was there forever. Took him to the state title game and stuff. Um, what the... I'm trying to think. I can't even think of his name now. He... Um, they had a little guard at the Ball State. It was really good. Um, the guy who played, he, he played in the NBA. He went to Michigan State. And he, oh, that was Scott Skiles. Scott Skiles, yeah. So he, he so was... He, they won the state title. And... That was the state title that was the all-inclusive tournament. Mm. It was before class pass. When Plymouth got about, and when Skyle was there, I think their enrollment was like 900 or 1,000, right around there. Yeah. So it was still a relatively small school. Compared, yeah. And people yep. think, oh, well, nobody since Milan at 54 is, was able to win the state title. Small schools couldn't compete. And it's like balderdash. I mean, every year from, from, from 1954 when Milan won the state title, and Milan had like 200 kids. From from that year till the year they stopped playing the all inclusive tournament, in every in every tournament but eleven, a school of five hundred or fewer enrollment made it to the semi state. So so they won a regional and then they got to the semi state. So that was tremendous fun. I mean, if you were Westfield, which is now a big school, but when I was there it was a small school, if we'd beaten Carmel, we would have been playing Kokomo in the Wigwam at Anderson. And I was with at a party with a bunch of Carmel guys a couple of a couple of weeks after the mm-hmm. after the game because we all knew each other. And and Carmel beat Kokomo by twenty two and lost to number one Rick Anderson by five. And, and they were saying, man, you guys would have drilled Kokomo. You were a lot better than them. So imagine, I mean, our little old Westfield with you know your size school mm-hmm. would have gotten to the wigwam in Ann Anderson and whooped Kokomo. And we probably would have got our heads handed to us by Anderson. But what a great experience! You know, you, you didn't need to win a, a watered down state title. To have a great experience and to, and to be heroes in your town. Hell, yeah. we, we were heroes in our town and we lost. Well, you know, feels, but, but we died with our boots on. It feels kind of similar to the excitement that I see people get rooting for a triple crown yeah. Yeah. winner. It, 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 it's unusual. It doesn't happen very often, but when it does, it was it was magical. I mean, you know, if 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 you're if you're if you went to a small school and your team won a regional. Which really actually happened a lot. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You were you were you were golden. You know, you guys were heroes forever for generations because mm-hmm. it was hard to do, but it wasn't impossible. You know, did we want to play Carmel football? Hell no. You know, we no, we. But, but could we play? Could we play in the hoops? Yeah. And that's why I've always talked to the class basketball folks and said, you know, we didn't need this for basketball. We were fine. We we had a unique tournament. That was recognized nationwide. Hell, ESPN telecast it. It was a big deal. It was one of the few things that we Hoosiers could hang our hats on. The, the Indianapolis 500 was another. Yeah. And they both went down the toilet at the same time. With, with the 500, it was the card IRL split. Well, and then uh, I guess it's because I've never been a racing person at all, but like, how long has it been since? You could turn on the television and watch the Indianapolis 500 when it was actually uh, on. Yeah, it's been a long time, and once again, that that is that is an anachronistic approach that they should drop. Mm-hmm. And once again, it was it was it was blacked out for the better part of Indiana for the sole reason of trying to get more people to actually come to the race. 
Which yeah. I lived at Speedway. That was a terrible idea. Yeah. <laughs> so there you go. But 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 the actual fact of the matter is, is that now with TVs, we've all got the big screens. We've all got the HD. You know, we're not necessarily unless we're big race fans, gonna go sweat our ass off and watch the 500 and get puked on and stuff when we could just stay at home and be comfortable in our air conditioning and drink our beer and watch the race with great cameras and great, great... Now, now I'm, I'm somebody who feels that the start of the Indianapolis 500, the flying start, the th- the, the, 30, the 33 cars, the, the 11 rows of three... Just start to record. We'll use yeah. this for my level. Okay. Yeah. Well, I did. I started recording okay. ten minutes ago. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, but, it just occurred to me. Um, yeah. So we we've been chatting for a while. All so right. We're good. I, I just think that's the the single most exciting moment in sports, except maybe for the Kentucky Derby. And the Kentucky Derby in the last couple of minutes, but it's awesome in terms of excitement. But you know, if you're sitting down on the first turn at the speedway and, and you're watching those cars come into view in turn number four. And the pace car is pulling off, especially if you've never been there before and you don't really know what the speed's going to look like. And the next thing, it's like, it's like they're shot out of a cannon. It's just unbelievable. And it's a thrilling thing. Then, unless you're a race fan, well, the balance of the race is pretty poor. <laughs> going around in a circle. A lot of circles, yeah. I, I will say this. In terms of the IRL stuff, it's been really good racing the last few years. There's a lot of passing uh, even on the last lap, I mean, a lot of races have come down to the wire. A lot of races have had very close finishes. Uh, very few accidents, you know, almost no fatalities. And we've unfortunately had a couple. But in terms of the old days, when you know, they, they had a crash and all of the all the gas would explode. And, oh, my God, you have a massive tragedy, you know. So so it's a safer sport now. And it's, and it's, and it's, a, it's a better sport now than it was 15, 20 years ago because there's more racing that goes on. There's more passing during the race, and, and oftentimes, as long as if you're lucky enough to avoid a yellow in the last 10 or 15 laps, those those last few laps under green are awesome. I mean, they're, 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 a lot of times there's a position switch and change of lead, you know, in the late laps. So it's been great. I mean, I, I think now that they've reunified, I don't know if they'll ever get their audience back. It's just like I, I don't really think high school basketball, which much. Uh, had a real hold on the collective consciousness of the state. We'll never have that again. You know, people have moved on, and people are college basketball fans. I mean, yeah. Indiana has just as many basketball fans, if not more, but they're just IU and Purdue fans, and or the Pacer fans, or whatever. They're, yeah. they're not. They're not. They're not mesmerized by the high school game like all the little towns used to be. I will say this, however, though, that there there are really cool vestiges of that still out there and really close to Bloomington. Hmm. And people want to drive down to Orange County or, or you know wherever you have got great small school programs like Bagodi at Bar Reeve and you can go down to Hatchet House in Washington at Davies County, Green County, which I think I'm not sure this is I'm, I'm this may no longer be true, but I read one time it's the third largest county Geographically, and the third least populated county in the state, but they're great basketball fans, and they've had they've got a great tradition out there. So there are places close by to Bloomington, and and the, the teams in Bloomington tend to be very well coached and very talented. Now the support here is like a lot of urban areas, a lot of a lot of bigger towns. There's you know there's a lot of other stuff to do, yeah. so the yep. kids don't all come to the basketball. 
but you go out into the hinterlands a bit. You're still not. Uh, right. Yeah, it's 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 so cool. I, I remember. Uh, I mean, the very first assignment I had for the Herald Times was as a part-timer to go out to Bloomfield in Greene County and, and cover a high school basketball game. And after the JV game was over, the varsities came out and they were playing Northeast Dubois. No, see, yeah, yeah, Northeast Dubois. And uh, they came out in blue and gray warm-ups and emblazoned across the chest was the word Jeeps. They were the Jeeps. So, so I pulled an assistant coach aside and said, okay, it's my first real trip out here. Uh, I got to ask you about the origin of the name. And he told me, and I don't see how I know I did how accurate this is, but he, he told me that that it was one of the first consolidations. And during the war, um, the Jeep had been introduced, World War II, the Jeep had been introduced as this multi-purpose, all-purpose, all-terrain vehicle that was going to help win the war. Right. Yeah. So they, they, they kind of patriotically, but then they also realized at the time, apparently, that, well, you know, we don't want to really, our, our mascot to be a motor vehicle. So they picked the little Jeep magical dog from the Popeye cartoons. And I don't know if you've ever seen Popeye cartoons, but there's a little Jeep Jeep yep. character in the Popeye cartoons. Yep. So that's their mascot. And to this day, you can go down to Northeast Du Bois and, and see this magnificent Jeep character <laughs> right on their back. Right on the basketball court. Yep. Local sports gem has Felix the Cat. And that that's a whole other tale. Yeah. That's, that's kind of... We'll probably maybe we'll, we'll, get we'll, that, we'll, too. We'll, 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 I was going to ask you about your first assignment and <laughs> why that, that was on my list. Well, you know, I can tell you about my first significant assignment, okay. which in terms of result and kind of mattering to a lot of people, which was not right at that same time. It was in December of my first year at the HT, so it would have been... 1982, 1982, December of 82, um, Jerry Yeagley's IU soccer team um, had been to the national final three times, and they had lost to San Francisco all three times. And San Francisco, under a coach named Steve Najesco, was an international unit. They, they brought kids in from all over the world, where you know, from soccer-playing countries, and they would cobble together a team that was very formidable. So it was hard to beat them. And Jerry Yangley, who started here with the club team back in 1960 and had finally achieved varsity status after much great effort on his part in 1973, started immediately getting teams to the finals in the mid-70s and, and whatnot. Probably should have won at least one. They were unlucky a couple of times. Um, but he got almost exclusively American players. In fact, mostly been Western players. A lot of kids from St. Louis and Chicago and a lot of, and some Indiana kids. And he was competitive with them, largely. And so, it, he, but he had not won. He, he had gone three times to the final and not won. So in this particular case, they were playing Duke, which was a power out of the Atlantic Coast Conference, which was a great soccer league and still is, um, down in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Um, and I, I got sent down there by the paper. Now, that's the kind of thing the newspapers wouldn't do now, but mm. they, they sent a part-timer down to Fort Lauderdale, Florida to cover the NCAA Final Four. That's crazy. So they, I, they, they, I knew I was booked into a hotel called the Flying Dutchman, which oh. sounded to, to maybe a bit, majestic. Maybe, <laughs> maybe a bit chancy. And we, we flew into the Fort Lauderdale Hollywood Airport, and the taxi from the airport took me th through some... 
questionable areas? No, no, not entirely uh, 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 Chamber of Commerce uh, style <laughs> areas of, of Fort Lauderdale. And I'm thinking, hmm, I just hope it's habitable. And, and I, I knew that I wasn't going to be close to the ocean or anything. I, I just wanted it to be a reasonably nice hotel. Well, it, it, they ended up pulling up, and it turns out it was a Best Western. And so it was a chain, but it was called the Flying Dutchman, but it was hmm. a, it was a Best Western chain. And so, and, and when I got out of the cab, I could smell the ocean. I thought, well, that's cool. I, you know, I, I can actually smell the ocean, so I'm not too far away. So I go to my room, open it up, really nicely appointed room, open up the curtains, and the beach is right there. And there's the ocean. So that was the first place. That's awesome. Place. So that was pretty cool. So um, um, I could tell a lot of tales about this, but I'll just, I'll just tell them about the actual final game, uh, which went... Eight overtimes. Wow. They did not have penalty kicks. No penalty kicks, yeah. They did not have penalty kicks back then. Um, Duke had tremendous speed, and, and at least in Indiana was very physical and very technical and very good. And so at first it looked like Duke might run Indiana off the field, but then Indiana gained control, a really good match. But it ended at 1-1 in regulation. And uh, so they, 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 with soccer, there's a mandatory two 15-minute overtime periods. We, we saw that just watching the uh, World Cup semifinals today. But so they played the first two overtimes and neither team scored. So without the mechanism without the mechanism of penalty kicks, they had to just keep playing overtime. Until well. somebody won. Yeah. And, and, and even though this was in December, it was Fort Lauderdale and it was very humid and it was hot even at night. It was an open-air press box. So I'm sitting there watching this unfold. <laughs> and I had already written up, once again, it's, it, from a technological point of view, it was very different back then, all right? We, we needed a dedicated phone line to send stories. Um, sometimes equipment was chancy. Hmm. Um, and there was no internet. No, there were no cell phones. It was nothing like that. Okay. No, no, and no fax machines. Like, no that, that wasn't a thing. Yeah, so it was not, it was, you know... By today's standards, quite primitive in terms of the equipment that we had. So it's an open air press box, and I'm watching the game going on. So as the game had progressed, I knew that it might get close to deadline now that it had gone into overtime and whatnot. So I, I, had, I had constructed an outline, just written it out, of the game story. And I'd done that in terms of the significant events that I wanted to mention in the game story. And then I wrote out a Duke wins lead and an Indiana wins lead. So I had those ready to go. Because we're like getting like right up to deadline here. So well, because of the humidity, um, the players started cramping up. And and pretty soon they started dropping like flies. And so uh, the NCAAs would meet with Coach Yagley, with Jerry Yagley and John Rennie, the Duke coach, who was a class act, and they, they would confer after an overtime when it ended. And so the overtimes went from fifteen minutes to ten to eight to five. So they were playing five-minute overtimes by the end, by the eighth overtime. And Indiana earned a free kick just outside the Duke 18, and so it was a pretty dangerous position. And they lined up for the free kick. And Indiana had a freshman All-American named John Stolmar uh, at midfield, a really, really good player, really physical player. And so Duke lined up its defensive wall, as you've seen on direct kicks yep. and free kicks. Oh, yeah. They line up their defensive wall. And so 
Greg Thompson, his nickname was Thumper, Thumper Thompson was lining up to take the kick, potentially, and there was another guy there, and so they always try and fool the defense. Fool, yeah. yeah. Who's going to take the kick? And Thompson had scored Indiana's goal, as a matter of fact. So anyway, so Indiana takes Stolmeyer. When the referee blows his whistle, and Stolmeyer runs around the right end, or, well, from the Duke's point of view, it would have been their left end, but to the, runs around the right end of the wall. And so it looks like Thompson's going to chip the ball while Stolmeyer's still onside, before he's passed the before wall, he's passed, try and chip it over the wall. So that it can get down to his feet free and clear to go one v goalie. That's what it looked like they were going to do. Because Stolmeyer makes his run. So the guy on the end of Duke's wall sees Stolmeyer coming, figures out what Indiana's going to do, takes a step out to go cover Stolmeyer, and stops and took the ball right past his ear, right where it's headed. Takes one bounce and goes into the net. Brilliant goal. That's fantastic. fantastic. So, so it's like deadline is now, right? So, so I, I, I leapt over the parapet of this open air press was back in the days when I could leap. <laughs> and I go pelting down to the field. And uh, Indiana had like dogpiled on Thompson. And, and I, I, what my memory is that Thompson was like still flat on his back and I'm hovering over him to get a quote. And then I see John Ritchie, the, the Duke coach, and he was very gracious and gave me a quote. You know, and, and, and then I look for Yagley. And Yankee was being carried by players or even maybe cheerleaders, and he had this giant IU flag, and he's waving it. So I go running up to him, and I go, Coach, Coach, what do you think? And he goes, isn't it great? The monkey is gone. The monkey is gone, because the monkey was off his back to the final game. So I, I, ran, I had my quotes. So I ran back up, jumped back into the, to the press box, and I, ripped, I, I got the quotes that I wanted. I, I ripped the quotes out of my notepad, and I literally physically placed them next to the, the story outline where I thought they would fit properly. You know, like, okay, here's the first quote I'll use after the lead. Mm-hmm. And, the thing. and I called up John Harrell. I mean, this deadline is now. So I call up John Harrell. It was a, a genius uh, executive sports editor at the Herald Times and now runs the biggest uh, high school basketball website on the web. And is a, is a, I can talk about him for a while too. But I call up John. <laughs> to give him the final, and he says, "Can you know?" And, and so we agreed I would dictate the story. So I dictated the story off the top of my head using the lead, using the outline, and then using the quotes. And John typed it in as I talked, and it came out the next morning. It was fine. There weren't even any typos because I, wow. I, I went. I was like cringing, going, "Man, I sure hope this comes out all right." And it came out just fine. And uh, so that was my first ex- you know, experience as a part-timer to handle that. And what a privilege to be, at that time, it was the longest college soccer game ever played. Now, later, a couple <laughs> years later, it got exceeded. And, and, and then they finally went, you know, brought penalty kicks in. But anyhow, it was awesome. And so that was, that was, a, that was a great, you know, I, I, I was really lucky and fortunate that I had John Harrell back back at Bloomington mm. uh, doing that for me. But uh, something that happened just a few days later, I got back to Bloomington and I was at Assembly Hall to help cover an IU basketball game. And I'm sitting there setting up my, my computer or something and I was like, I get this whack on the back of my head. And Bob Knight had walked by and he goes, nice job down at Fort Lauderdale. 
that was my first interaction with Bob Knight. Nice. I got, it was great. I got a whack on the head and a compliment. Because he was, he was following, paying attention to everything else that the rest of the kids at the... Oh, yeah. He, 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 Some would call he, that an early indicator, though. <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, that was a sign of affection. <laughs> no, that's really genuinely yeah. true. Uh, now, you know, but that, that group of coaches... That was at Indiana at that time. Jerry Yeagley, who turned out to be the greatest coach in college soccer history, and <clears throat> in my view, and I think that's kind of a consensus, actually. Uh, Bob Knight, you had Sam Bell, who coached the U.S. Olympic track team. You had mm-hmm. Doc Councilman, who not only was the greatest swimming coach in the history of the sport, he revolutionized the sport. The, the, the book that Doc wrote, The Science of Swimming, totally revolutionized the sport. So there were a lot of coaches in Indiana at that time that were elite, and yeah, and I was friends, you know, friendly with all of them, and then it was a it was interesting. I was a, I had been an undergraduate in the in the mid to late seventies, and so all these guys were there when I was a student, just cheering at the stands and stuff. But yeah, that was a tremendous group of coaches that they had at that point in time, because Knight was the best basketball coach of his generation. Whatever else you might want to say about it. Oh yeah. He just he, he set the standard. Gene Cady told me one time, the great Purdue coach, he said, hell, we all had to copy Bob just to compete with him because he was so far out in front of everybody. He took stuff that he had learned from Pete Newell and Claire B and, and folks like that and synthesized it into his own approach to play with a passing game motion offense and help side man defense. And it was revolutionary. And literally, it was true. Everybody had to adopt that approach to play or just get, or just get whooped. Because he would whoop them. I mean, you know, Indiana should have gone two years back-to-back undefeated national championship. If Scott May doesn't break his arm, that's what would have happened. <laughs> and so, people should understand. I mean, that, that's what that's what that was. It was important. Yeah. All right. So, one of the first questions uh, that I kind of wanted to ask you, and and looking out of this, and in fact, we off of off of Mike just a few minutes ago, where we're talking about this just a little bit. Is is your your beginnings and how you got into this? A lot of what interests me in talking to the people that we talk to is knowing them more as 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 full people, not just a list of accomplishments or, or something like that. And one of the interesting things that I, I saw in, in in your setup is that originally you studied history, mm-hmm. um, which in some people's minds might be an odd odd choice to, to move into journalism from in, in some respects. So I was kind of hoping that you would kind of give us just an idea of where you started and how you got into what you got into. Oh, sure, thanks. I, I, I was a history guy uh, from my earliest childhood memories. I, I was always interested in it. Uh, and when I came to college, I, I always felt like I wanted to be a history professor, frankly. And so um, I initially went to Butler University my freshman year because my dad was a Butler guy and actually I got a scholarship to go there. Ostensibly, I was going to play baseball and possibly even football. I did neither because I met a, a girl from New Jersey at freshman orientation and decided I wanted to be out on dates on a Saturday <laughs> night, not in a visiting locker room somewhere. So, so that changed. Fair. And also, when I was at Butler, I realized that at that time, at least... They, it's a great school, obviously, but I, I, they didn't have the breadth and depth of history curriculum that I wanted to pursue. And so I, I, I went down to IU, which was my mom's alma mater, and so I, I went down to IU. Um, 
And I did an undergraduate thesis in history that got me sent to the UK. Hmm. Um, I was interested in and focused on the trans transitory period between uh, Roman Celtic Britain and Anglo-Saxon England. And we don't know a whole heck of a lot about that. There are not a lot of extant sources. It's a very interesting, very dynamic period of history and that we don't know much about. Uh, I ended up uh, focusing precisely uh, upon the uh, foremost British I'm sorry, the foremost Roman governor of the province of Britain, who was a guy named Agricola, whose father-in-law uh, was one of the Roman historians who actually, when we are able to check out what they say with later research, turned out to be pretty right on. Accurate. It was Tacitus. And he was one of the few Roman historians who didn't automatically consider non-Romans subhumans. You know, he, he, he didn't. He would give the barbarians more of a uh, equitable treatment in terms of how he recorded his history. Certainly, right. So anyhow, um, that was great. I mean, I I, I got sent over to uh, to England and um, I lived on a student hostel on Gower Street, right across from the British Museum and the University of London. Ended up running a little Ford uh, car, uh, shifting with my left hand, sitting mm. in what for us is the driver's seat. Was, was it a prefect by any chance? Tell me it was a Ford prefect. Yeah, I think it was, actually. That is And, and so we, we went, and it was at the Godfrey Davis Agency in Victoria Station. I remember that. I remember coming out the, the tunnel, because it was, you know, it was an underground garage. I came out of the tunnel into this blinding sunlight and next thing I knew I was at Hyde Park Corner Roundabout and I thought well I'm going to die I just hope I won't take too many people with me but I, I navigated it I always thought since I grew up near Indianapolis in the circle downtown was one way yep one big roundabout right of way if you're in the circle and the same rules apply to British roundabouts and roundabouts everywhere so that helped me Help me survive the first day, but I bombed around the island. Um, it was the first time I'd been totally on my own. First time I'd been overseas, and, and just I was like, it's in between my sophomore and junior years of college. So it was awesome. Wow. So uh, I was there all summer, basically. Got back. Uh, it was one of the few times in my life I, I, I was I was something other than pudgy, because <laughs> when I first got there, English food struck me as just being almost inedible. They, they, they would either Steam all the flavor out of it, or grease it up to the point of inedibility. So don't you I, want? Don't you want beans for breakfast? Yeah. <laughs> so so I, I, I eat nothing but but ethnic. I, I would go down to Soho and get like Indian curry, which was awesome. Uh, I was going to say Indian curry is probably a yeah. real big um, in in that area. But once I got outside of London, the pub grub was fine. I mean, the food was better once I got out in the countryside and whatnot. But for for weeks, I lay, I lived off of packaged Danish ham and and real ale, <laughs> which was you know I lost a little weight. But in any case. Um, that was, a, that was a great trip, and I came back over, and doing an undergraduate thesis, I had, I, you know, I had an advisor, and I had to uh, defend it orally in front of a committee and all of that, mm -hmm. so I did all of that. It was interesting because I, I, the, the, my sponsor was awesome. Was a, was a guy who was later the, the, the head of the uh, College of Arts and Sciences graduate school, a guy named Leo Solt. Uh, Leo was awesome. Uh, he, he was the very first class I took at IU in terms of history was a British history class, and one of the first things Leo had us do 
was read John Stuart Mill's treatise on the, that was titled On the Subjection of Women. Mm -hmm. And, and if, if I had not already kind of been inclined to be a feminist, I sure as heck was after reading that. It really made the point that even up to that stage in terms of Western civilization, we had precluded half of humanity from education and from contribution to society. I mean, when the reality that hits, I mean, how many... How many Jane Austens or Madame Curies or whatever did we miss out on hmm. in terms of Western civilization? Because yep. women weren't allowed to be educated, and and, and so, so Leo was that kind of guy. You know, I, I had great professors. I had him Rufus Fears, a Harvard guy that spoke seventeen languages. He was awesome. He he was going to take us to follow the footsteps of Alexander from Macedon all the way into India. But wow. he got a uh, Ford Foundation uh, Guggenheim Fellowship to write a book, and so you know we ended up not going. He had to stay home and do the book. <laughs> do the book. But anyway, so it was great. Yeah, I had a really good experience at IU academically in that sense. Felt really fortunate. Um, but in doing the thesis, I, I got a really good sort of long glimpse at faculty backbiting and petty jealousies and stuff. Plus, if I was going to continue into classical history, I was going to have to master German and Greek and some stuff. I thought, you know... I'm just going to give myself a year off, and and I, I attended bar when I was in school, so I, I'm just going to attend bar for a while and think about what I want to do because I wasn't sure. I was kind of academically flamed out. I mean, everything went fine, but I I was like, you know, I'm just going to take a breather. And in doing that, I I, I thought about other things, and I ended up uh, applying to law school, and and I I got accepted at Michigan and IU, and I ch I chose to go to the IU school in Indianapolis. And um, to make a long story short, that, that's a whole other story. I'm not going to bore you with <laughs> But, 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 but uh, I, the grades were fine, but it got to the point where I was, I was so, well, I'll just say this. The, 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 the dean insisted that every class have a 2.1 GPA, mm -hmm. aggregate GPA, and some of the professors manipulated the grades. And when I found that out, when the rest was how I found out, uh, on average, uh, uh, an incoming law school class will have about a third attrition, and we lost over two-thirds of our class. You know, I felt physically ill walking into the place after I found out they were doing that. And so, and so for me, because you, you, you could bust your tail, but there, there, was, there was no guarantee you were going to get the grade that you really married. That you deserved. Sure. Yep. And, 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 you know, in law school, all, all the... All you know, the entire grade comes down to the final. I, I remember uh, thinking that I'd kind of punted civil prov, the, the civil procedure class, because part of the exam was to go to the library and to, to research cases and cite cases in your argument. And, and when we went to the library, and, and I couldn't find it, nobody could find it. And, and so I thought, you know, I'm, I'm hung up on this. I need to finish the rest of the exam to even have a chance sure. of getting a decent grade. So I did that. Well, it turned out there was no research to find in the library. And so part of the test was, how how smart are you going to be about giving up on that hmm. and finishing the rest of the exam? Hmm. So I got an A in civil prob, whereas I got a C in contracts, and I knew that I had absolutely friggin' aced contracts. I had absolutely aced it. I had talked to that class, I knew the prof, and you know I knew, I knew when I wrote a good blue book. You know what I mean? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I was, you know, and I got a C. So I went in and talked to the guy. Afterwards, and I said, you know, hey, I, I just wanted to say, you know, I mean, I'm a bit disappointed by my grade, but but 
I just want to see what you needed from me that, that is What did I miss? Correct. And, he's, and he started going through it. He's, well, here I needed this. And I said, well, here it is. Here's the citations. You know, I thought that was in there. And he finally confessed to me that they were... Cooking the books. He, 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 thought, he thought my GPA could handle it. You know? <laughs> so, so... Well, the whole, the whole cornerstone of law rests on on a set of morals and and presenting yeah, things in a I, I just, way. And, and I you know I was still by maybe I was still a little bit too young and maybe I didn't handle it as maturely as I needed to. I mean I kept going, but but I, I literally it just poisoned it for me. I mean I, I literally oh, yeah. you know I had to tell my dad why I was getting out of school and he didn't really understand. But I, I tried to explain it to him, but it was a tough time. So I was really really at a crossroads at that juncture. And I said, well, shoot, what am I going to do? Um, and then I had to ask myself, what can you do? And I said, well, I can write. I know I can, I can utilize the language in a way that's reasonably successful. So maybe I should look into writing and journalism. So I, I got into the grad school of journalism here at IU and I was an AI. Uh, I was, um, <laughs> I remember, you know, we, we would, I would be, grading like 160 freshman term papers and then 160 freshman finals mm. while I was taking my own finals. So I, I and, and I was attending bar and, I, and, I, and a, a fellow AI, a guy named Pat Washburn, who later became a professor over at Ohio U, in, over in Ohio, great guy, said, hey, uh, you're a sports guy. They, they, got, they got a part-time opening at the HD. If you want to earn a little extra bucks, you know, maybe you should check it out. And so, so I did. I, in high school, I played four sports, and, and you know, Richard, you, know, you went to Culver Community. I went to Westfield, and our schools were about the same size, back yeah. then, about four hundred students. So, if I tell you I got you know thirteen or fourteen varsity letters, it wasn't because I was a great athlete. It was because <laughs> if you could walk and chew gum, you know, they wanted you to play. Uh, that's me. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. So anyhow, but so I played all these sports. And that, that was part of the reason I think that I, I kind of hung up my jock when I went to Butler because I was, I've been playing sports pretty much my whole life. So anyhow, so I said, yeah, thanks. And I, so I checked it out and, and I ended up getting the job. And so um, I was part-time from like August till through December and then in January they bumped me up to full-time and I never left. That uh, kind of longevity you don't don't see too much. No, no. No, when I was young and marketable, which didn't last all that long, I, I did actually get some nice offers early on in my tenure at the HT, but I, I wasn't inclined to take them because I mean, shoot, you know, if you're I was a Hoosier fan, I was covering the Hoosiers, I was living in Bloomington, you know, if you're from Indiana, and there are a lot worse places to end up in Bloomington, so I, I, sure. I enjoyed being here. I also was learning about the community, and I found out, you know, if I ended up settling down here, if I'm ever fortunate enough to get married and have kids, this would be a great place to, to be. And so, you know, I could have been the sports editor at Joliet, Illinois, and I could have worked for the CJ down in Louisville and the Chicago Trib, but mm -hmm. I, I was just fine. And then I always thought, you know, if I get restless later on in my career, I can... I could do that then. You can always transition. That never, that never transpired. I, I just I was always happy to be here. And once I did get married and have kids, I really didn't want to leave. And, and I'm not sure I was very marketable after a certain point in time. I, I think when you're young, you know, they'll give you a shot. 
if you show some stuff, they'll they'll they'll, they'll be interested in you. But if you you know, I was I was kind of the uh, kind of the uh, uh, like kind of an unofficial apprentice to Bob Hamill, our longtime sports editor. Was Indiana Sports Writer of the Year thirty times or whatever the heck it was. He's a he's a legend in the profession, kind of stuff. And Bob's story is very interesting. But I was kind of the second banana, or maybe even the third or fourth banana. So I, I don't know if I was very marketable after a certain point in time. So they wouldn't necessarily look at what you wrote and judge it on that as to whether or not you were the type of individual they would want. I don't know. I mean, they, they you know, after a while. They started coming up with you know contests and we you know, we entered contests and I won awards and stuff like you know but but no I mean no I mean I think there's a time when I think I was talking to a high school basketball coach one time Tom McKinney who coached Bloomington North to the last all inclusive state title in 1997. 1997. That was yeah. a real pleasure and privilege for me to be along for that ride and mm. that for somebody who really loves and cares about the Indiana high school basketball scene and that tournament. That was really cool. I, I, boy, that's that's another really lucky thing. I'm a very lucky person. That was another very lucky thing for me. But Tom McKinney told me one time that he was uh, he was an assistant to a guy named Pat Rady, and they're both in the Indiana High School Basketball Hall of Fame now as coaches. And Pat's a great guy. And, and Tom was his assistant at Winchester, Indiana. And then later at Franklin, Tom was an assistant. And he said, you know, when I decided I really wanted to, to be a head coach, I'd waited too long. And everybody thought of me as the B team coach, mm. or you know, put me in that level. And I think that's kind of what happened with me too, to be honest. That makes sense. So. But um, I was gonna say, the, 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 you had the offers you said from some of the like the Chicago Tribune and a couple of the other ones. Mm-hmm. Um, do you ever? I, I know you probably don't, but do you ever have a, a, the slightest, tiniest bit of thought like, well, you know what? What if I did that one for a year? You know what? No, what what no, might have happened? Yeah, I really don't because I'm an extremely happily married man, and I, I and I couldn't be prouder of my two kids, Alex and Evan. And I don't know that happens if I leave town. Yeah, exactly. I don't know who I end up with or what happens. So no, I, I don't mind that at all. I, I was just you know we all in our lives. And things like that. And I'm not saying it's not worth contemplating because it is. It's kind of fun in a way. And to look back and say, you know, there was that particular fork in the road. And what what if I had chosen differently? Uh, My brother and I just got back from a trip to New England. And when I got out of high school, and and this is, is, I feel sheepish even mentioning this because it'll sound like bragging, but I don't (laughs) need it to be. When I got out of high school, I, 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 something prompted me to to apply to an Ivy League school just for the hell of it, just to see if I could get it. I did the same thing. Okay. So I picked Dartmouth because the North Woods of New Hampshire sounded exotic to me. I thought, well, that'll be cool. I mean, you know, well, they accepted me. Hmm? And of course, you know, monetarily and for other reasons, it just wasn't going to happen. Yeah. But so, so my brother Rob and I stopped by Dartmouth, you know, just a couple of weeks ago. And I was checking it out, thinking, oh, you know, what, what would it have been like? And... I don't know. I would have been happy there. I don't know what would have happened. So it's sure it's fun to be kind of whimsical about it, but no, I'm I'm, I'm a really really fortunate person. The way my life has panned out is so I'm so lucky, and so yeah, no, I don't I don't have any qualms about any of that. Yeah. 
Um, the other thing, I, I, I kind of wanted to ask a little bit, too, can, and we, we've touched on it, just I mentioned it the tiniest little bit, how things have transitioned from a media standpoint now. Mm-hmm. Um, when you did your stuff when you're uh, in 1982 and you went down and did your soccer stuff mm-hmm. about how things I feel like maybe even in the last five years, the uh, like print media and media in general has just totally, the landscape has totally changed oh, on that. Like an alternate universe. Yeah, it's totally so for, from your Aspect when you were doing, when you were going to places or you were looking, um, when you were in certain places, maybe doing reports or interviews and stuff like that, what what do you think personally was your biggest change, maybe the biggest hurdle that you had to overcome when you were used to doing things the same way for 25 years, well, more or less, yeah, you know? Technologically, I mean, I'm, I'm basically a Luddite, okay? So when I, when I was doing sports the first 20 years, when I first started working in the sports department, we were a PM newspaper. We were an afternoon paper, which meant that if there was an Indiana basketball game, let's say with an 8, eight o'clock tip-off, we would cover the game. Mm-hmm. Then we would interview coaches and players after the game. Then Bob Hamill and I would talk about the game. Then we would contemplate about, okay, what are the better angles here and which avenues should we go down to write stories? Then we would have a you know division of labor and decide which stories each of us would do. He was always going to do the game story in a column, and then he would write another one, and then maybe another one. And I would usually do a sidebar and do something else, blah, blah, blah. And so our deadline was 11 a.m. the next morning. So if I wanted to adjourn to the Irish Lion and have a pint and talk with my pals about the game and think more about it, and then go and write at 3 a.m., I could do that. Hmm. I could do that. Hmm. So, so, so now, if you're covering an Indiana basketball game, and it's an eight o'clock tip-off, deadline is fast. now. Deadline is immediacy. You know, it, it is is you you have to inform your audience as the game is transpiring. Uh, even just a high school game, for example. Um, let, and, I, and I would do that when I came back to sports in 2010. I'd gone from what I knew before, and when I came back in 2010, suffice to say that when I'm covering a high school game upon my return, then I am keeping a full box like I always did. I'm keeping all the stats in my scorebook. I'm keeping a running score with notes like I always did, with notes that would help inform my story when I'm done. I am also... Tweeting. Tweeting. <laughs> and also using my cell phone to video highlights of the game and texting and tweeting those out during the game. At halftime, instead of conferring with my compatriots and, you know, talking about the game or shooting the breeze or whatever, I am writing the first half. And everything has to be done now. Now. Hmm. And, and so at the end of the game, I basically have my game story well in hand, and then I go run down and get a couple of quotes and add those in, and off you go. So it's not only multitasking, it's multi-platform tasking, and it is immediate. There is no time to ruminate. Uh, It's like meatball surgery. It's like you dive in and do the best you can, but it isn't as though um, (laughs) one has a lot of time to 
massage a lead and make it better or to come up with another angle that you didn't think about right away. There's none of that. It's so, so one has to become adept at preparing before the game to, to have some, a thought process where, okay, these things happen, here's what I can say. And, and so very, very, very different. Do you think that the stories have suffered because of this? Without doubt. I mean, I, I'm, I'm a long-form journalist from, <laughs> and my editors would say, way too long-form journalist uh, from way back. Um, I, as a reader, I love it when uh, an article makes me think. I love it when an article makes me laugh. I mentioned John Harrell earlier. You know, John John never liked my jokes. He, 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 would, he would edit out my jokes all the time, and he was probably right. But, you know, I, I love it as a reader if, if, if the, the, the writer gets a grin out of me, you know. Well, it's a lot harder to do that, or it's not, it's not going to happen nearly as often when you're just going 180 miles an hour trying to get something done and get it out. And that's, that's, that's what it is now. The, the sense of immediacy, especially um, even though with newspapers, which as we know is an industry in real trouble now, uh, the, the, the majority of newspaper, newspaper readers are my age, you know, and that, that kind of generally around, around my generation or so, any of the younger generations, you know, they want it now. That, that the immediacy is the thing. And if they don't get it from you, they'll get it from somebody else. So mm -hmm. that's not negotiable. That you, has to happen. Do you see the pressure coming from a lot of independent sources, blogs, and uh, and well, podcasts? podcasts. And sure. Yeah, I mean, it's a different type of competition now. I mean, there was always competition, you know, it, it, and often, you know, between print and electronic media sources, yeah. There's just a lot more electronic media sources now. Oh, yeah. And, and once again, in the immediacy business. Sure. About, I'm sitting there shooting video with my cell phone. I can't really compete with the TV station that has a videographer there. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, so we're trying to do all of it. Um, I, I, whereas I think newspapers might, it might behoove newspapers now. To look at what they can provide that the electronic media can't or won't, such as really thoughtful, longer pieces a day after the, of, of the fact, some, some real uh, cerebral analysis, you know, the, the thinking fan, and to try to appeal to that. But I don't know if there's enough of a market for that. I mean, I, once again, if there's a business model that would work for print journalism right now, I, I imagine it would have been discovered by now. I've, yeah. I've noticed from pretty pretty much any type of uh, electronic media that I see nowadays, whether it's through some of the larger sites like a Yahoo or or uh, you know other sources that are providing immediate news, the uh, the amount of just small things like grammatical errors oh. and well, see now you cut me to the quick because as somebody who cares about the language, who who is. Uh, has been, has been, rightly or not, a professional wordsmith. The virtual death of the language in 140 characters has been really tough to watch. And, and, and we have a lot of people who are doing journalism who have no training in journalism. Mm -hmm. I, I, I took and helped teach journalistic ethics classes. And people think, you know, uh, Rush Limbaugh will get on the radio and say, Oh, you know the, the journalists are all liberals. Look at the look at the newsroom, look at the newsroom survey. 
Well, yeah, I think most people in most newsrooms are like liberal arts majors who most of them would identify as Democrats. But if you are a trained journalist, and I mean this, and I'm saying this with complete conviction here, you are trained to keep yourself out of the story in terms of straight reporting. Right. So one time when I was working on the news side, you know, I, I went up and covered George W. Bush speaking at Indy Black Expo, of all things. And I also went to see Bill Clinton speak at a Jeff Smolian synagogue up in Indianapolis. And I would defy anybody reading my accounts of either of those events and being able to divine my politics. And I'm keeping myself out of that. It's just straight reporting. That's how journalists are trained. Absolutely. So it's all these people who are like crying about fake news and stuff like that. It's like, look, the legitimate news people, the, the trained reporters, do their level best to bend over backwards to keep themselves out of the story and to present news in as straightforward a fashion as possible. Mm-hmm. So we have, we have people in the public sphere now saying, oh, well, you can't trust anybody. You know, you can't trust anybody in the media. And I say balderdash. You know, you, you can and should trust the professionals. It becomes pretty clear when you read somebody whether or not they have a, an ability to limit their personal biases from, mm-hmm. from the piece. Sure. If you're not looking for an editorial or... Well, and, and people should always understand, too, there's a difference between editorials and, and straight reporting. Mm-hmm. You know, an opinion piece, sure, I'm, I'm giving my opinion. If I'm, a, if I'm reporting an event... As a straight reporter, I'm as absolutely straight as I can possibly be. And, 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 and pure objectivity is unattainable Correct. because we're all human beings. But those who are trained in journalism ethics and, and, and trained as journalists do their best to be as objective as they can be. And we need to start, if nothing else, in this current media landscape, we need to start rekindling public faith in professional news organizations. And I'm not talking about amateur bloggers. I'm talking about professional news organizations. Sure. Because those people are trained. And they will do their best to get the news to you in as unfettered and as unbiased way as they possibly can. And, and I, I'm editorializing there. <laughs> well, that doesn't always make the money when you are honest. but No. Or, or neutral, I guess I should say. No, so. and no. But, I mean, in fact, that's absolutely true. When Bob Knight was fired, shoot, I, you know, all of us who worked in the Indiana Beat media were all over the freaking place. I, mean, I was on Fox News. I was on Chicago radio stations. I was everywhere. And my take on Bob because I'd been around for all of those years, was that it's not a black and white thing. Mm. It's a whole lot of gray area. It rarely is. But that doesn't play to the radio stations. They wanted a quick, hot, snarky take and an extreme point of view. And I wasn't going to give them that. I wasn't going to say that Bob was a rampaging, ogre, emotional five-year-old, and that's all he was. I wasn't going to say that he was a brilliant coach who made his players men and, and, you know, extolled the proper virtues of society, and that's all he was. I wasn't going to give him a, a strong take one way or the other on that. I was going to say he's a brilliant guy and a very nuanced human being, and that, that was my truth. That was you know, I was giving it to him as straight as I could, but it wasn't exciting them because I wasn't bashing him and I wasn't, uh, you know, worshiping him, you know, from afar. I was trying to be balanced in terms of my point of view. Well, and it seems to me that a lot of people 
or let me rephrase this. It seems to me that while larger companies are often pursuing what's termed clickbait now, yes. but pursuing that that quick emotional emotional response to, to get people to see what they want them to see and then see the ads so they can get, get the revenue to do yeah. what they want to do, that, that engagement that you can get when you read a, a piece that truly encapsulates a, a situation or an individual, it gives you a level of satisfaction so much greater than that, that quick no impulse. No doubt. I mean, you know, I, I, I knew where a lot of the skeletons in Bob's closet were, to be honest. And I wasn't the guy who was closest to him by any means. I mean, Bob Hamill was his best friend. I didn't have any anything anywhere even approaching that kind of relationship with it. But I can tell you stories. I'll be glad to do that now. I, I tell you stories that nobody's heard. There, there, there was one story that I was going to do about something Bob did behind the scenes for a family down in Bedford that was dealing with a cancer situation. And it was just an amazing story. It was really, it was heartrending and really, really interesting and all of that. And I was going to write it and Hamill's, you know, Hamill spiked it. He said, you can't write that. He doesn't do stuff like that for the publicity. He doesn't want his name to come out. Are you kidding me? And that's true. But I'll, I'll tell you one of the stories. You know, yeah. It involves, involves Bob, uh, Tom McKinney, the Bloomington North coach. That I, I mentioned it. That'd be awesome. Um, Especially, I mean, when we spoke initially, and I won't say where because we tend to tend to keep certain aspects of our our personal life top out of the secret. Podcast. Uh, but when we first spoke, you had you had told a story uh, about Bob Knight uh, that that I found truly interesting, just because of the difficult nature of that and you just briefly mentioned it talking about interviewing him uh, three days after yeah he was he was fired, he yeah, was fired and that. that's such even in the best of times that's a very sensitive and delicate thing and you get to see sometimes the worst of people mm -hmm. uh, when they're they're dealing with such uh, 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 personal loss yeah I mean, it is incredibly traumatic obviously um, I can tell that story now if you want. I was going to tell a different one, but I'll tell that one. Tell them all. Both, both yes. stories. I, all right, I agree. All right, all right. All right. Well, let me tell the, the first one I was going to tell about the kind of stuff that Bob would do behind the scenes. Now, now, if, if one knew Bob Knight only from like the ESPN low light reel, mm, yep. yeah, you would think, okay, he's an ogre. He's he's awful. Why would anybody, you know, get back? He threw a chair. He wears a red sweater, and he yelled at his players a little bit. The end. And, yeah, no doubt. I mean, when players came here, they, they knew what they were signing up for, and it was like boot camp on steroids. I mean, it, it was it was tough. I mean, he, he came from that military uh, approach of breaking them down and then building them back up, kind of psychologically. You know, that's that's kind of what he was. I mean, and there's no doubt about that. It's the kind of modus operandi that I never could have adopted. It just wasn't my personality. But anyway, it was old school. It was very, you know, but, but, you know, the, the, what I always told people is that the guys who actually went through it, like 80%, 90% of those guys were like fiercely loyal to the guy. So what does that tell you? You know, they're the guys who actually lived it, all right? But anyway, you know, the, here's, here's, here's one of the tales I can tell. Um, and I'll do the best I can with my memory because it's been a few years. Um, there was a guy who played at Bloomington North High School, Bloomington High School North officially is what it's called, mm -hmm. named Jared Jeffries, who later was Indiana Mr. Basketball and, and uh, uh, Gatorade Player of the Year, national you know, guy, and played a long time in the NBA. Great, great, great guy from a great family here in town. 
And yeah, you know, I was recruiting, and so was everybody else, you know, Duke and everybody. So, and I had gone through a period um, in the late, like, well, I'd say the, the, the middle 1990s, where he had kind of, and he admitted this to me, he'd kind of, kind of, uh, handed off the recruiting responsibilities to the assistant and he went fishing and hunting a lot. And so mm-hmm. so the recruiting kind of tailed off a little bit and you know some of the seasons weren't as successful as some of the earlier seasons. Uh, although by today's standards they'd still be considered very good seasons. Very good seasons, yeah. But, but nonetheless, so so he had made a he had made a decision that he was going to take back over the recruiting. And plus uh, given the new regime at NIU at, at the time, which was President Miles Brand and right-hand man Chris Simpson and the rest of those guys, he said, eh, my days might be numbered, so I, I, I need, I'm, I'm going to go back into recruiting. So he was recruiting Jared Jeffers, the, the great player from Bloomington North, and everybody wanted Jared. Great kid, you know, great student, great player, all of that. And he was six, you know, ten. So, so, and so anyhow, um, because NCAA rules, um, if if a kid is being recruited by his hometown college, the normal restrictions on visits go by the wayside largely, and it's still true. I think he can basically come over whenever he wants. They, they don't try to keep hometown kids from going over to the college. Yeah. So after Blue and North would finish practice, Coach Tom McKinney and Jared Jeffries would frequently go catch the end of IU's practice, which normally lasted longer and whatnot. So they went over almost every day. And uh, one time, I noted that Jared Jeffries was there, but Tom McKinney, the coach, was not. So when McKinney showed up the next day, Knight goes, where the hell were you yesterday? And Tom said, well, actually, I was in Columbus uh, with my father-in-law. And I said, why Why the hell were you doing that? And Tom said, well, actually, He's terminally ill. Uh, he's a great guy. Uh, so he's a podiatrist over in Columbus. Everybody calls him Doc. And we've outfitted our van so that uh, we can handle his wheelchair. And then we, we, we're starting to take him and run errands and do things that he needs done that he can't do on his own anymore. And I said, oh, I'm sorry about that. And I said, is he a fan? And Tom goes, oh, yeah, yeah, big fan, big time. And I said, so he's, he's, uh, he's at least, uh, he can... He's somebody that you can, he, he still can travel. You know, he's not ambulatory, but he can travel. And Tom said, yeah. And I said, well, can you bring him to practice tomorrow? And Tom said, mm, yeah, I guess so. So McKinney calls up Doc, his father-in-law, and said, hey, I'm going to come get you tomorrow, and we're going to drive you to Bloomington, and i got some things lined up for you. So he goes over and gets him and drives him back, drives him up to Assembly Hall, um, and, <laughs> and he wheels him down. Uh, uh, shit, I'm gonna forget. I'm gonna forget the name of the uh, what they call the coach's office, not the cage. What the heck was that called? Anyway, he, he, he wheels him down to the coach's office, knocks on the door, and Knight opens the door. So there's Doc in his wheelchair, and there's Tom Kennedy. And Knight looks at Doc and goes, "How in the hell could you let your daughter marry this son?" the cave that's where it was it was called the cave that was the, the coach's place so, so they wheel him from the cave down to the south basket support and practice is going to start so McKinney goes up and sits in the stands and Tom says 
he was telling me this whole story. It's all came from Tom. And he wouldn't mind me telling it now, I don't think. I hope not. But anyway, um, he says, so like the, the, the practice starts. And it didn't look like there was anything orchestrated. But I noticed that whenever there was a break and they got water or whatever, that one or two of the kids would come over and talk to Doc. And he said, by the time practice was done, every kid, everybody on the team had come over to talk to Doc. And practice ends and they take Doc and they wheel him back into the locker room. And Tom said, I don't know what happened there. All I know is that they wheel him back out after 20 minutes and he's got warm-ups flopped across his, his, his feet. He's got net around his neck. He's got a basketball signed by everybody and he's crying. And he cried all the way back to Columbus, and I couldn't get a word out. That's so there's that, nice. There, there's that side of Bob and I, too. Yeah. That kind of stuff happened all the time. Now, did he throw a, 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 a guy that I know and a friend of mine and a university employee up against the wall? Yeah. He did stuff like that, too. Yep. Uh, did he treat some people horribly? Absolutely he did. Was he an enfant terrible when he was young? Yeah, he was, you know. He was also the, the most brilliant and best basketball coach of his generation. Sounds like he's just a man in a lot of ways that's just ruled by his emotions. Maybe. I don't know. I mean, he, you know, he had a tremendous intellect. He was really funny, especially if you liked uh, crude humor. He was funny. Um, really, really smart. Um, and history guy. And that, that leads into my other story. You want me just to tell that, I guess? Uh, oh, yeah. All right. So... Three days after IU fired, which obviously was a, a massive trauma for the entire state and Indiana fans everywhere, and certainly personally for Knight, um, it was it devolved somehow upon me and our great columnist at the HT, Mike Leonard, who was my best pal at the paper. I had a lot of great friends at the paper, but Mike and I were probably closest, and uh, still my you know great pal today. Anyway, so we got the assignment to, to go out to uh, Bob's house near Ellettsville and interview him. And it was because Bob Hamill was out of town. And I think, I don't remember why, but it was like he was, he was on assignment someplace. And obviously with such a, uh, with an event of that magnitude, I mean, we needed stories in the paper every day and all of that. So, sure. So Mike and I were going out there. And I remember thinking as I was going out there, we were driving out, and I'm going, boy, Bob and I had always had a good professional relationship. We weren't personally close. We didn't know each other that way, but professionally, it always been fine. But I, I also knew that, man, in these circumstances, I'm not sure if this is going to work, if, if I'm going to be able to really do an interview that's going to be worth printing for anybody you know, at this point. Because it's got to be, he's got to be really, really, you know, it has to be very difficult for him right now. So what am I going to do if I get there and he just doesn't want to talk? So I was thinking about this on the way out there. And we, we, we got to the home and Karen, his wife, answered the door and says, well, you know, hey guys, I, I know why you're here, but it's really difficult. I'm not sure he's going to want to talk, but, but come on in. And sure enough, you, you walked in and the pain was palpable. I mean, the thing, it felt like it was, you know, you were walking into a morgue, uh, you know, or, or you know, a funeral parlor. Yeah. It was funereal. That was a good word for it. And, and, and it was palpable. I mean, you could just sense it throughout. It just pervaded the entire home. And so we walked into 
I guess it was a study maybe or something. And there was a desk there and there was a couch opposite. And, and, and so we, we take our seats and he won't even look up at us. He's just staring right down at the floor. And there's just dead silence. All right. So I decided to try my gambit with this, what I thought about on the way out there. And I said, Coach, obviously we're really sorry to be out here under these circumstances. And I know it just has to be incredibly painful for you. So, but I don't know when I'm going to get a chance to talk with you again. And there's something I always wanted to ask you. And he looked up and said, what's that? And I go, why did Dan Sickles take the Federal Third Corps off the ground where Meade posted him the second day at Gettysburg and stick him out there in a sailor where Longstreet could just pulverize him, which Longstreet proceeded to do? And I goes, well, because he was an idiot. He was a political appointee, you know, and then he murdered his wife's lover. And I said, yeah, Francis Scott Key's son. He goes, yeah, exactly. That was the first time in the history of American jurisprudence that the insanity of defense was successfully used. So he just goes off because I knew he was a history guy. So it's like Giddy's mm -hmm. murder in 20 minutes. And then Mike noticed that he had Chip O'Neill's biography on his desk, so he asked him about that, and then it turns out Harry Truman at that time is his favorite president, so it's Harry Truman mm -hmm. for, for 10 minutes. And after that, Karen is bringing in drinks and sandwiches, and she goes, now, Bob, you know why they're here? And he gave us great, great basketball-related stuff for about two and a half hours after that. So I've always, whenever I've gone to talk to classes at IU and talk to students in journalism, and I say, you know, if at all possible, and you guys were gracious enough to do this for me when, when we had this interview for this podcast, learn something about who you're talking to. They're all human beings. This is a very human being-oriented business. Hmm. And no matter who they are, they're, they're people. So learn what you can about them and try and approach them in a human way that gives them to understand that you know a little bit about them, you've done a little research. And I knew Bob was a history guy. I mean, you know, he's, he's, he's uh, very well versed in a lot of subjects, but that's one of them. And so that saved my derriere. Nice. <laughs> that, 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 that made that a tremendously enjoyable, well, at least for, for us, I'm not sure how enjoyable it was for Bob, but it, it, a tremendously fruitful interview. With Calms the nerves a bit, you know. It could have been no interview. So. Well, with your, with your, 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 History in history, as it were. I mean, a lot of uh, a lot of individuals in the past. Uh, when I when I've talked to people that have been in the process of studying for an undergraduate degree or a graduate degree, uh, a lot of time can't explain why they get into a specific subject or another. But with history, everybody that I've talked to has has said that the reason that they got into it is because they were able to see something in it that other people didn't. They were able to see the people instead of just the situations, and that that gave a, a different kind of resonance. To I, I agree with that. I'm, I'm a big liberal arts guy. We, we don't value the liberal arts in our society anymore the way I think they should be valued, hmm. because it, 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 it prompts critical thinking. It, it prompts an understanding of, of, of your fellow human beings, an understanding of the world, an understanding of the economic forces that might be at work in the world, an understanding of the historical context of current events. All of that stuff matters. I mean, in a democracy, you know, if we want to be informed citizens, if we want to be able to take disparate data and make sense of it, well, the liberal arts education is a big deal. There used to be companies, Cummins over in Columbus with one of them, they, they, they didn't hire MBAs, they hired liberal arts guys, mm. liberal arts girls and, and, and guys, you know, because those people could think, and those people were good with people. 
And those people understood how the world worked a little bit. And, and that was a valuable commodity. And we've lost that in our industry and in our approach to things here now, which I think is great, greatly to our detriment. And I think we need to not just reinvest in public education. I'm a big public education guy, too. Absolutely. As a absolute foundational bulwark of our middle class, which is eroding before our eyes. We need to do that, and we need to reemphasize the liberal arts and reemphasize the importance of understanding and the importance of empirical fact as opposed to the hot take or the, or the opinion. It's like somebody said this. I don't even know who it was, but somebody said, uh, you know, uh, all men are created equal, but all opinions aren't. That's and, true. And, and that's something that we can't, we can't hold up opposing opinions in, in journalism and act like uh, we're, we're doing our job by simply presenting both opinions, when one of them might be full of prunes. We, 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 we still need to do our job and be a filter and make, make, the, make the listener or the, or the viewer understand that this guy just made this case and it's frankly a house of cards. It, mm-hmm. it's got, there, there, there are no empirical evidence to support his or her position. And, and we don't do that anymore. It reminds me of a similar, similar quote. Uh, well, I'm, I'm, I'm certain I'm misquoting uh, as, because I can't even remember the source at this point. Again, similarly, yeah. but uh, talking about in any given argument, only one individual can be right, but both individuals can be wrong. Yes, I agree with that. And, and, and certainly both individuals can be partially right. Mm-hmm. And that's another thing I've always felt is true, that in our incredibly polarized politics now, we, we have to avoid... The, the mindset where we're just simply ideologues. It, it, this notion that everybody on our side of the fence should be deified and everybody on the other side should be demonized. No. No. We should always approach every discussion, even, even politics, which is fraught with emotion, mm-hmm. with the notion that the other side might have a point and that, that, that we, we might want to listen to them and might want to understand their point of view and might want to understand where they're coming from. You know, now, if we don't agree with them, we can say, well, you know, we don't, we don't agree. But this notion that we, we, we live in separate, and that, that's one of the things that happened with the media after the, the Fairness Doctrine was done away with during the Reagan administration. And I don't blame Reagan for this because with the onset of the Internet, Mm-hmm. The, the Fairness Doctrine was going to go by the wayside regardless. Yeah. You know, the Fairness Doctrine, for those who don't know, was a, was a, from a legal point of view, required media outlets to present both sides of any issue. If somebody uh, was given editorial time on a television station, then the other side got, the, got equal time. Point and counterpoint. Yeah, mm-hmm. correct. correct. And from a, once again, when you're talking about a healthy democracy, that's not a bad thing. That's actually a good thing. However... Once the Fairness Doctrine was done away with, we end up with talk radio and, and cable news networks that are that were frankly created to extol the virtues of one point of view as opposed to the other. And so that's not healthy because it's human nature to, to glom onto media that that seems agreeable. That 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 makes you feel like a part of it. Yeah, these folks understand what I feel and what I think. I'm going to watch these guys. I'm going to listen to these folks. And I'm not going to listen to those folks over there anymore. If you search for a little while, you're bound to find somebody you agree with. Of course. And 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 that's just human nature. It's like I I don't blame the broader society for this. But but the way the media changed 
And yeah, and, and I'm talking about, you know, when, when you're talking about Fox News, I mean, Roger Ailes was making the case of Richard Nixon back in 1972. You hate the media so much, let's, let's create a conservative network. I mean, it goes back a ways. So, you know, and, and, and so we've gotten to the point where we are now, where we have people, we have a political, we have a body politic that is absolutely polarized. Because all they do, if they, if they pay attention, if they're, if they're following the news, all they do is spend the entirety of their time in their own little news bubble that is completely separate from the other news bubble. And that's what they do. And it, we live in, in dangerous times now when we have political leaders trying to not only undermine other institutions of government, but, but saying a free press itself is the enemy of the people. This is dangerous stuff. This is authoritarian stuff. And so, as an old codger, as somebody who's been around a little bit, this scares the people really out of me. And, that, that pe and, and people are, that's going to resonate with a lot of people. Because they've been told for years that, oh, you can't trust journalists, and oh, you can't trust, and the other side is evil, and the other side is wicked, and you can't, they're un American, and you can't listen to them. You know, well, we're seeing the fruits, you know, of that. Uh, unfolding before our eyes right now, and and obviously, uh, you know, I'm probably betraying my politics right now, just talking about this. But you understand where I'm coming from. This is not healthy. It's not healthy for a democracy. What we're seeing, what's happening right now. All right. So one of the one of the other things that I was hoping to to ask you about, um, and you kind of touched on this just a little bit earlier. Um, was uh, Bob Hamill. Um, you're, you're talking about uh, kind of having a, a, a unique relationship with mm -hmm. him over, over the years. And as someone that has not maybe been as informed on, on how things have been put together, kind of describes me a little bit about, about who he was and, and how your how your interaction worked and how maybe it shaped. Yeah, I'd be glad to. And Bob's still very much with us and uh, still very influential in the community. Uh, he and I are, this is through his auspices totally, but he, he and I are uh, on the Monroe County uh, Historical Society uh, Sports Committee. We, we help organize stuff for the History Center, especially Bob. It's all, you know, Bob Bob's awesome. I mean, Bob, Bob has done so much in so many different capacities in the community. But I'll tell you a personal story with Bob when I first met him. Um, and once again, this is when I was a part-timer. Um, I had just come on on board. I was maybe, I don't know, you know, I'd been there for a month or something, whatever, not, too, not really, maybe a couple of months. And, and so we didn't really know each other very well, but there was like a preseason uh, press gathering for Indiana basketball over at Assembly Hall. So this was sometime in the fall, and I, and I started in August. So anyway... So, so we go over to Assembly Hall and, and we do our bit and interview players and whatnot. And uh, on the way back, we're, we're Hamill's driving, I'm just sitting there on the passenger side. And I don't know what prompted this other than he's a very perceptive person. All of a sudden he looked at me and he said something unexpected. He said, is there anything wrong? And actually there was something wrong. I, I, and I, I said, yeah, actually there is kind of, I mean, how did you know? He goes, I used I just looked, it just didn't look like, it just looked like something was wrong. 
And I said, well, you know, it's not really, uh, I appreciate you asking, but it's you know, not anything of your concern. Uh, but during our summer assemblies season that just ended, I'd had some roommates, you know, who took taken off. And so we had brought a couple other folks in to sub, sublease our place. And uh, one of the guys, uh, before he took off at the end of the summer, wrote a $400 check to cover his part of the rent and then went back to California. Well, the check bounced. And, and I had already, I had written a bunch of uh, checks for to pay bills. And so uh, I didn't discover that the check had bounced. I, I'd written all of these checks to pay bills. And so not only did I not have the $400 that, that his check represented, but the bank took $400 out of my account to cover that check. That's how things work. So I was 800 bucks in the hole without knowing it. And I'm writing all of these checks. And so they're all gonna bounce. And I'm going to have to just dig myself out from under, and I'm going to have to pay all of the late fees and all the penalties and everything that comes with bouncing a bunch of checks. And my credit rating is going to be terrible. And I can't get a hold of this guy in California because I tried the, the phone number you know, that he left, and it's, it doesn't work. And I just I have no idea how to get a hold of him. So Hamill listens to all of this. you know, and, and all of a sudden, without saying anything, he just pulls into a parking spot on Kirkwood. And... and he gets out and walks in and, and to a place and I realize it's a bank. He comes back out and hands me 800 bucks in cash and says, just take care of it and uh, no need to pay me back in any kind of hurry at all, just, just when you can. And that, 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 that's for a part-timer that he barely knew at that point. So that's, all right, so that's Bob. All right, that's, that's, Bob is one of the gentlest, kindest, smartest once again, I've been fortunate to meet a lot of really bright people in my life. He's right up there, as intellectually capable as anybody. He, he's a guy that he, he only had about one semester at IU. And then it, because of the death in the family, uh, he had to go home. He had to support his family. He started he started working at, at the, the Huntington paper, his hometown paper. Hmm. And within weeks, he was sports editor. And with a few weeks after that, Old Man Pulliam wanted to make him editor of the entire paper. True. This is how talented this man is and how hard he worked. That's how impressed they were. And um, of course he was gonna take the job, but then he thought, oh, I probably should tell him, you know, this is the, uh, the Pulliam family that owned the Indianapolis Star, mm -hmm. that, that married into the Quayle family and Dan Quayle's from there. In fact, little Danny Quayle used to run around the, the uh, Huntington newspaper <laughs> newsroom. <laughs> So Hamill goes in, and, and, and they want him, you know, Old Man Quayle wants him to be the, uh, this is not Old Man Pulliam, Old Man Quayle wants him to run the, uh, wants to become editor. And, and, and Bob said, well, you know, I really am deeply honored and, of course, appreciative, but I probably should tell you that I'm a Kennedy Democrat. And that was the end of that offer. <laughs> because he was going to write the editorials and whatnot. So yeah, that, 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 that makes that, sense. That's, anyway. So, so Bob, Bob was somebody who, uh, I don't know what his average workload was, but bear in mind that this is a man who wrote a column every day and who also covered every Indiana University sport. And he wow. wrote all of the previews, he wrote all of the game stories, he wrote all of the follow-ups, and he covered track and baseball and stuff too. Not just not just for not just the big ones. He worked 
conservatively 80 hours a week. He was there on every day, all day Sundays. Um, his family is great, so obviously he found a way to, to help make that work somehow. Um, his work ethic was off the charts, it always was. Uh, his, his associate, his executive editor, John Harrell, was also from Huntington, and he was brilliant. And I mentioned him earlier. He's the guy that runs the IHSAA website. It, it was John's website. The IHSAA asked if they could use it because it was so great hmm. in terms of providing data, statistics, and schedules, and tournament info, and all that kind of stuff. It was all there. And John was brilliant and, and ahead of his time. Um, he used to put he used to put the entire sports section out in a matter of, of, of just an hour, hour and a half, maybe. Uh, whereas you know, some people on the news side who also work really hard might have a couple of pages. He, he would have an entire sports section, eight, ten pages. He would he would he would design it all. He he worked at an early macro on the computer so that every AP box score that came over uh, was automatically configured into our hmm. our configured just automatically. Just automatically put in there. Just macro. Okay, nice. he's, he's that type of guy. So those are the kind of guys that I'm working. John Harrell was the guy who called me on my phone in my student hovel to let me know that he was going to hire me. And so those are the guys I was working for. Every single member of the, of the Herald Times sports staff that I joined is in the Indiana Sports Writers and Sportscasters Hall of Fame. Every guy. Hmm. So it was high level. We did stuff that nobody did, especially papers our size. Uh, Rex Kurtz, my former colleague, used to do a uh, all-state football team that was published every Thanksgiving, and it was a bear. It, it, the, the amount of man hours, the amount of work that went into that is just almost incalculable. He would start calling coaches in the summer together. He would preview the entire state. Hmm. He would send out, he would send out uh, questionnaires to coaches toward the end of the season to get their feedback on not only players on their own teams, but players they had played against, players from other teams in their area that they thought were worthy of all-state mention. He would tabulate it all. He would write it all. And we're talking about, wow, eight pages of, of body type uh, with, with profiles. You have a top 33, an all-senior team, an all-junior team, and an all-small school team. Man. And did all of that while he was covering every sport at Blooming High School South. And helping with the IU stuff. Uh, I did the basketball. <laughs> that was me. That's the staff that I joined. And that's the kind of work ethic that was embodied by Bob Hamm. All right. So why was he Indiana sports writer of the year 30 friggin' times or however many times? That's why. And not only that, his stuff was great. I mean, he was a brilliant writer. Now, Hamill's reputation suffered because of his closeness to Bob Knight. Hmm. There's no doubt that from in, in, in journalistic circles. But I always tell people, I say, you know, one has to understand the context in which Hamill grew up. Pure objectivity was not the goal in journalism when Hamill was, was, was starting his career. In fact, uh, people like sports writers who covered a major league baseball team frequently went on the same train as a major league baseball club and played poker with the guys and got to know them and they cultivated source relationships that way and wrote great stories that way but they were like virtually part of the team hmm. that was how it was almost that, like Milton PR you were, you were embedded with the you team you were embedded with the team that's right and that's totally how it was 
So, so Bob Hamill being Bob Knight's best friend was not unusual. That kind of relationship was not unusual when, when, when those guys were growing up. That was kind of how it was done. This is before all the President's Men and Watergate and that kind of stuff established kind of a different, you know, and a more empirical, objective kind of approach hmm. to covering, you know, journal, to all forms of journalism and including sports journalism. So there were things that happened toward the tail end of Bob's career. <coughs> he was Bob Knight's best friend. So when Hamill retired, Bob Knight wanted to give him a car as a present, hmm. as a friend. And he did that in front of everybody at Assembly Hall. Because why wouldn't I? And most <clears throat> modern journalists would absolutely, and, and I understand why, have a complete conniption fit about that. It's yeah. like, the guy you're covering just gave you a car. How can you possibly countenance that? But that's the world in which the journalism world, in which Hamill grew up, and in which through most of his career applied his trade was a different kind of, you know, we call it a good old boy network, call it what you want. But it was, it was, a, it was a different deal back then. And Hamill was always very progressive. He was, a, he, was a, he was a courageous journalist, too. The stuff that he wrote about the Munich Olympics, because he was there, is just off the charts fantastic. It's just unbelievable documentation of that incredibly tragic event. In Munich, uh, but he was so great. I mean, he he made the the, the Herald Times a national newspaper. It was called the Herald Telephone back then. Yes, fact, people, I remember that. People knew hmm. whenever they heard telephone, they knew it was Bloomington. I was telling people it's a true thing. I would pick up the phone sometimes, and people would be wanting to pay their telephone bill because they thought we were the telephone company. Oh, uh, that's so, funny. That's a true thing. But the Hamill went to all, all the Olympic stuff. He, there, was a, there was a publisher named Perry Stewart. Okay. He was the, uh, the publisher here in Bloomington when Hamill was hired. And Perry was, was a great, great person by all accounts and a great publisher. And he, he wanted to have a world-class newspaper and a world-class sports department. And he sent Bob to the Olympics because Indiana... Always had athletes. I mean, swimmers and, and other people in the Olympics. So, Bob, you know, so the the, the the HT that I joined, the HT that I joined, um, once again, it, it's hard to convey to people nowadays to understand what that was. But there's a reason why we had the cachet and reputation that we did, and it was because of Bob Hamill and John Harrell and guys like Rex Gertz who just busted their butts and did an immense amount of work, and did an, and did great work, you know. And and so, um, there are people who like to think that Bob somehow failed as a journalist because he didn't live up to their standards of objectivity in regard to Bob Knight. And in fact, that blighted Bob's career probably, and it blighted the career of those of us who worked with Bob. I should just tell you that too. Mm. And and I, and and I, I don't think it was fair. I understand it. I understand the criticism of it. When John Feinstein's book came out, Season on the Brink, and presented Bob as kind of Knight's lapdog, mm. his lapdog hometown newspaper guy, that 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 affected Bob's reputation nationally, and it affected the reputation of our sports department, sports department locally, even 
inside the HD. And once again, one understands because by a modern standard of journalistic objectivity, that was a failure in terms of you know Bob's approach to, to covering Bob Knight, his friend, the, the guy who had been his friend for many years. From a personal point of view, I like Bob Hamill. I love Bob Hamill. And, and, and I will always respect Bob Hamill. And I make no apologies for that. That makes sense. Like anything else, it's like we were talking about earlier, it's, it's, it's not black and white. It's You can respect an individual even beyond any choices that are made on occasion that you might not no, you still agree with. Pro, most prolific and one of the most gifted uh, sports writers that I've ever seen. And uh, he... <laughs> I mean, he earned my respect because I saw what he put into it. And uh, that, that will never change. And, and once again, I understand those who are critical of him in regard to his relationship with Knight and, and, and his approach to journalism in that way. But I try to remind them that the context was different back when all that was developing, that we didn't have the standards of objectivity that later became prevalent in our, in our profession, and which I think are good, which I think are, are, are right. But they weren't really, they didn't really necessarily exist when Bob, and Bob always told the truth, as Bob understood it, and as Bob wanted to, and as Bob, and Bob always presented the truth. So, so he, he never allowed his friendship with Knight to, to cause him to present things in a false way in his mind. So he, he, he Bob, Hamill never forfeited his integrity as far as I'm concerned. As much as people wanted, they might well disagree with that understand why they do. And I'm not saying I'm right and they're wrong, but that's how I feel about it. And I, I work with the guy. Hmm. I love the guy. I mean, and, and I always will. And, 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 and I think my own career was affected by things. And I, and I think, you know, other people's careers were affected by things along those lines. Well, and, I think a lot of it's tenure related, too. Because if you think about someone who covered a sports team for... 15 years, 20 years, spent a lot of time with that team, those teams always had revolving doors of managers and coaches and players where at a college... You don't see it. You don't see it now. You don't see it now. But but then having that, that same person there for... You're exactly right. It was 29 years. Hmm. You're... You're going to be some around somebody that long. You're going to develop some type of friendship with them. We're I mean, human beings. Yeah. And so, as I said earlier, I mean, a, a pure standard of objectivity is mytho- mythological anyway. I mean, you know, nobody can attain that. Well, what one tries to do as a professional is to do one's best to, to adhere to that. Sure. And, and, and look, I mean, you know, I, I was an IU guy. I went to IU. I loved IU. I was an IU fan. I stood in the stands and cheered and stuff. All right. And shoot, when I was in school in the mid to late 1970s, those were a really good time to be at IU and be a basketball fan. You know? <laughs> so, so you know, I was a fan, and, and you know, did, did that mean that I, I excused every misbehavior by night? No, it was embarrassing. You know, I mean, not people try to present Indiana fans at the time as being just enablers and sycophants, and that's not true either. Not everybody was, at least. I mean, a lot of people were saying, you know, that sucks. That's, yeah. that's embarrassing. But, but and even Knight said that. You know, Knight even said to me one time, you know, he said, now I get home a lot of times and look in the mirror and go, why did I do that? Or, why, why did I treat the kid that way? 
I was over the top, you know. So you know, he even self-reflective in his own way too. You know, he didn't think he was perfect. So so look, I mean, you know, but, but it was a great time to be here, and, and and so. But when I got hired at the Herald Times, you know, it was a situation where I had to sit at you know courtside at Assembly Hall and pretend like I didn't care, and I did. I, yeah. I was quiet. I was. I betrayed no emotion. You know, I, I was at the Superdome when Keith Smart hit the shot in 1987, which is still the last time Indiana hung a NCAA championship banner for basketball. And I was sitting completely motionless when Keith Smart hit that shot. I wasn't up on the table cheering or anything like that. I mean, you know, this is a national title. Just <laughs> internally. Yeah. But yeah. if you look at so, my notes, when I always kept a running score and notes, you know, it, it was like pretty meticulous through most of the game. And at the end, it's like, smart, it's the shot. It's huge, it's huge, <laughs> huge letters in my notebook, you know. Because, yeah, of course I was emotional. But I wasn't going to show it. I wasn't going to demonstrate that. You know, and that's the difference. I mean, we're human beings. Of course, of course, we follow teams. I mean, you know, I'm a Green Bay Packer fan. I'm, I'm a, you know, I, I'm a St. Louis Cardinals fan. I have teams that I like. I'm an Indianapolis Colts fan because they moved to my hometown or my, you know, my, my capital city. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, so we ask, of course, I have favorite teams. You know, but but when I'm doing my job, I do my best. When I'm doing straight reporting. Or even really when I'm writing a column, you know, I, mean, I wrote columns covering IU football, and um, once again, I'm, I'm not, I'm, I'm not, I don't think that, you know, Bill Mallory or Kevin Wilson or any of the coaches that I wrote about were always 100% on board with what I had to say. Uh, I'm not sure I didn't make them happy at times, but you know, that doesn't mean I, I couldn't have a, uh, I couldn't have a relationship with Bill Mallory. The, the, the late great Bill Mallory that I really valued and to this day treasure and here's a little lesson for, for everybody mm-hmm. I was Bill and I were supposed to do a book uh, Bill was going to do it with Bob Hamill but Bob's you know 80 years old now and, and Bob can't accept every every uh, uh, project that comes his way at this point so you know Bill was nice enough to ask me and I was there aren't many people I would have done it for, to be honest with you, because after 35 years of writing, it's like, that's why I'm not on Facebook, because I don't, the last thing I want to do when I would go home is to write some more. (laughs) Writing's hard, at least it is for me. It takes a lot of mental energy and even emotional energy, because I pour myself into it. I want to make it the best I can possibly do. That's my approach. So it can be very draining mentally and even emotionally to do it, to try to do it well. And so I've been doing it for 35 years, and so it's like, I don't want to do any extra stuff, but I would for somebody like Bill Mallory, if, he's not, if it's an honor to be asked to do something like that. So I went and did a bunch of interviews with Bill last fall, and I got busy, and you know, he, he, and, he and Ellie, his wonderful wife, went to Florida for the winter, and, and you know, it was kind of understood that when they came back, that we would re-engage and, and do it again. But I should have done more. I should have. I finally transcribed all of the long interviews. It took a while. It was you know, hours of interviews. And so, you know, I, I should have been in touch with him though and said, "Hey, here's what I'm thinking about 
for the structure of the book or here's some of my ideas and I want to do what you know he wanted to do kind of a coaching manual kind of thing but also make it entertaining and tell some stories too okay so which stories from your career can we bring to bear to make this point about how to approach coaching you know, blah, blah, blah. so I should have been doing a lot more of that at one time and I thought oh well you know he'll be back in the spring and then we'll, we'll get back together and we'll figure out what we're going to do and unfortunately you know Bill passed away so so I'm getting to that age where I try to tell people all the time, get it done. Yeah. Nothing's guaranteed. No, no, no sunrise is guaranteed any of us. So if you want something, if you got something you really should do or want to do, do it. Uh, so anyway. <laughs> like a podcast. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> okay, can I tell you about Bill's last game? Yeah, absolutely. Go ahead. Yeah. All right. So, so Bill, this, this is one of my, once again, I'm a lucky guy, and this was another case of me being a really lucky guy. Uh, Hamill had retired. This said I even forgot until I went back and looked at the articles, actually. But uh, we had a guy named Gary McCann who came in from North Carolina to to replace Hamill. Of course, nobody could really replace Hamill. Gary's a great guy, but you know they asked too much because nobody could replace Hamill. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the amount of work with—I mean, no, nobody worked like Hamill did. And, I, and when I say 80 hours a week, I am not exaggerating. Okay, so. It's unusual. Yeah. Anyway, so the, the 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 Indiana administration had had decided to that they were going to let Coach Mallory go, and, and admittedly after after a great run, you know, six I think it was like five bowl games in six years, I think it was, and you know he'd had some great great success, and risen Indiana's he'd raised Indiana's competitive level considerably. Still, the only year. Indiana beat Ohio State, Michigan in the same football season. It's 1987, for example. Mm-hmm. He accomplished a lot of great stuff. Well, anyway, um, they decided to let Bill go, and they this all came out in the middle of the season because once they told Bill, he said, "Well, just tell everybody. I'm not going to hide it." You know, he, Bill's a very honest. He was always a very honest man, uh, a great, great man, a wonderful person. Anyway, so he's coaching his last game at Purdue. It's the old Oak and Bucket game at Purdue. And uh, it turned out that it was the uh, Purdue coach's final game, too. It was Jim Coletta was the coach. Mm. Anyway, but nobody knew that. Everybody knew it was Bill's last game, at least I think. I'm not sure the Coletta news had come out yet. Anyway, we all knew it was Bill's last game. And so I'm sitting up in the press box with Gary McCann. And as the first half goes on, I start seeing, I'm looking down at the sidelines, at the Indiana sidelines, and I keep seeing more and more former Mallory players showing up. I see the great Anthony Thompson, and I see other guys showing up on the sidelines. And mm. they've clearly come back to support Bill in his final game at NIU, and it turned out the final game of his coaching career. So I told Gary McCann, I said, I'm going to go down there at halftime onto the field, because I'm going to start getting quotes now. Oh, yeah. You know, while these guys are here and I can get them. He said, no, that's a great idea. Go on down. So, you know, with a, with a press pass, you can, you can go on the field and go on the sidelines and stuff. So I go down there, and, and sure enough, you know, I see guys from past teams and those past bowl teams and stuff. So I start getting quotes and whatnot. Well, the game, I believe, I think it was 10-10 at halftime or 10-7 Purdue at halftime or whatever. But the second half is all the way to the end. They totally dominate the game, and they, and they win the game. And so at the end of the game, I'm still getting quotes from people and stuff. The game ends. And Indiana guys go across the field, get the bucket, and, and that because, you know, Purdue would have it. So Indiana went and got it. And, uh, and, and this big throng of players 
goes down toward the south end zone where, where the primary uh, seating for Indiana fans was. Hmm. And so they're raising, they're all cheering and stuff. And, and I'm still getting quotes, but it's getting really crowded. It, it, it's all it's all everybody's shoved down into the end zone and the south end zone. It's, <laughs> it's the opposite end from the horseshoe up at Prostate Stadium. Yeah. Everybody's down there going nuts. And it's like, you know, we're packed in like sardines at this point. Everybody's like, you know, all squished in together. And I'm still trying to write on my notebook and talk to guys and whatnot. And after some cheering and chanting and whatnot, it, it finally people start drifting toward the Indiana locker room, which is also down on that end. So I'm jostling along with little mincing steps, and, <laughs> and, and, and all of a sudden I get bumped, and I, and I look over to my right, and Nate Davis, who was from Richmond, Indiana, and one of Indiana's defensive ends, is the guy whose shoulder pad hit my shoulder, and or, you know, bumped into me. And I looked on, on top of another shoulder is Bill Maller. Mm-hmm. And, and, and Bill has the bucket cradled in his lap and tears are just streaming down his face. He's just crying. So as we as, as we go along and I'm right next to him and, and we get near the entrance of the locker room, the guys put him down and he looks over and sees me. Mm-hmm. And, and I will never, ever know what possessed him to do this. But he he sticks his hand out to shake my hand. And I shake his hand, and with the other hand, he hands me the bucket. Let's me hold the bucket as we get swept into the Indiana locker room. <laughs> now, I'll tell you what. As, as, as My parents went to 47th Street Bucket Games. For, for, for somebody from my family, that was pretty cool. You know, and, and I should tell you about my parents. This is, this is a funny story. This is, this is why it was so meaningful. Not, not just the fact that it was Bill Mallory, who was a wonderful person. Not, not just a great coach, he was a wonderful person. Um, when my mom and dad were dating back in 1950 my mom had been on the IU campus in the mid 1940s as I think I mentioned earlier she knew all the football players because her father knew Bo McMillan the Indiana's coach back from college days and so she met all the guys on the football team and they were really good Indiana football teams Indiana went 7-3 against Purdue in that decade the 1945 team went unbeaten uh, beat Purdue in the last game and Purdue had a great quarterback named Bob DeMoss, who later became a coach administrator mm-hmm. for Purdue. Anyway, so it was a great IU team. And so she became a fan. I mean, she knew the guys on the team, and, you know, she became a fan. So she's dating my dad in 1950. And my dad's a Butler guy, so he's, like, officially neutral in regard to IU-Purdue. But he knows Purdue engineers, and so he gets tickets to the, the, the uh, bucket game up at Purdue. And, and they make arrangements to go. And it turns out when the, when the forecast came out for that Saturday, it was like wind chill minus 20. It was like blizzard kind of thing, <laughs> right? So my mom and dad were from Indianapolis. And my dad says, hey, I'll tell you what, let, let's just listen to the game on the radio and I'll take you out to Sam's Subway afterwards and we'll have a really nice dinner and have a, have a really nice day here in town. And apparently my mom looked at him quite imperiously and said, I don't know about you, but I'm gone. Mm-hmm. So they mm-hmm. went. And, and, and after that, they went to the bucket game, come hell or high water. It was like a, a kind of a romantic thing for them that they, no matter what, mm-hmm. they're going to make the bucket game. So for, for somebody like me, you know, with that kind of family background, I mean, so that kind of experience was really, really cool and really valuable and deeply appreciated. Yeah, I've been to a few of the uh, bucket games 
in some of those cold weather situations, and I can, I can attest to it. They get really, really cold uh, on a no, middle of November. Um, sometimes, because now, um, of course, at IU, they've got lights. Now, I don't know how long the lights have been at the stadium, but they've been there for a while. But is really nice now. They refer to the press box as awesome. Yeah, that, but I, I've been to I've been to them here in Bloomington. I've been to them in Lafayette, and it does get very very cold and windy. That, that time of year, you know, it, it, it tends to. Uh, um, I, one other really cool thing that happened with me when I was working this time for uh, uh, it was right after right before I left the HT, and right before I started working part time for IU Athletics, um, I went to. The well where the old oaken bucket was extracted. Hmm. Uh, it's down near Kent, Indiana. It's near Hanover. It's, it's down pretty far south. And the family that had owned the property had sold it. And so it had been a generation or two um, that they had been away from the place. So they, and so a couple of the people from the family weren't even exactly sure where the old farmstead was. So they went, but they, they became interested in it, so that they went to the local library and looked it up and looked up the, the plots of land and stuff like that and said, okay, here it is. So Mark Deal, who's an associate athletic director at IU and who is Mr. Old Oak and Bucket, <laughs> he knows more about it, cares more about the bucket than any human being alive, I think. Uh, he took me down uh, and we went to this place and I'll tell you what, there, there's, there's family lore in this farmstead that Morgan's Raiders, the Confederate Raiders who came up to Indiana, it's the only major Confederate unit that spent any time in Indiana, came through there and drank from the bucket, or at least one of his raiding parties did. Mm. And that's and, and once again, there, there's no reason to disbelieve it. There, there's no reason to think that the family just made that up, but, that, but, but, but and, and Morgan's Raiders were known to have been in that area. And so, the, this farmstead was back off the road, and the driveway was not grass. It was grass. It was not gravel. It was grass. And it, it was far enough back on the road, and the farmstead was unoccupied, and the well was covered up, but it was clearly really old, and and you were far enough away from the road, and, and, and it just... You literally going there, I felt as though the centuries were just peeling back. It was a hot summer day, and I could just imagine the Confederate Raiders coming up from the creek right there and coming up to, you know, get, they'd watered their horses and coming up to get drinking water from the farmstead, and you could really see it. So it's cool. It's a real place. I mean, and, and that's, uh, that was really fun. That was another fun thing I got to do. Hmm. <sighs> do you have any further questions for our friend here? Oh, I'm sure I have lots and lots and lots of questions. <laughs> I think we've probably got time for at least one more. Well, I, you know, me being and in, in good portions of our family being uh, Purdue folks, um, what has that kind of ever, I think when you look at national rivalries, I think one that is, in my opinion, maybe because we're homers a little bit, that's a little underrated or undervalued is actually the Purdue IU rivalry more so from a basketball standpoint but from just a general you know maybe an athletic or uh, even economic or whatever rivalry I agree wholeheartedly uh, 
when 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 Knight and Katie were going at it, that was awesome. That, that was that was that was every bit as good as Duke, North Carolina, had or whatever you know, one any other ones you want to put out there. Uh, two great coaches. I think I think Purdue had to like forfeit a game because I can't remember why now, but I think you know Katie would have been up one or two games on night, but I think that made it even. But whatever, it, it was extremely competitive, and it was awesome basketball and yeah. a lot of in-state kids on both sides. And just incredibly, wonderfully emotional games to watch. And both teams habitually spending time in the rankings, you know, often in the top ten. You know, you had guys like Glenn Robinson and Alan Anderson from the same class mm-hmm. on opposite sides going at each other, that kind of stuff. It's awesome. And so, you know, we, we've, we've missed out on that in recent years, mainly because IU has struggled, you know, for a while. Uh, IU and Purdue... Still to this day, and I think Illinois is the only one that's close. Where are, are the Big Ten standard bearers in terms mm. of you know all-time wins and all that kind of stuff? Yeah, the best winning percentage. Too you know, much people think stuff. about. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, because the state of Indiana, historically and certainly back in the days when basketball was growing up, produced more players than any place in the Midwest. You know, so so I and Purdue were well stocked. They were always really good. They had great coaches. The great Piggy Lambert. Everett Dean and I, you know, great coaches. And so when Knight and Katie were here in, in my lifetime, you know, that, that was when, you know, that was one of the apogees, one of the peaks of the rivalry. And, and we really haven't been there for a while where both teams were really good and both teams were nationally ranked. Both teams were fighting it out for a Big Ten title and that kind of stuff. But I think we're getting there. I, I think Matt's got it going. I mean, clearly, and then Purdue's you know, come off Big Ten title and that kind of stuff. And I'm a big Archie fan. I mean, I, I'm an Archie convert for sure. So I think it's literally a matter of time and not a very long period of time for Indiana's right there. And, and so, and I'm talking nationally probably. Yeah, and, and so, the conference schedule that they do now – makes the rivalry better or, or, or worse because it used to be there was a home-and-home. Home and right. you know, it's going to get better because they're going to 20 games, not 18. They're going to go to 20 Big Ten games. Mm-hmm. Okay. So Indiana Purdue is, is now a protected rivalry. That's hmm. another change. So IU and Purdue will play each other twice every year. Every year. Home-and-home. And there's a good chance that they might see each other in the Big Ten tournament too. That's true. Yep. And with the Crossroads Classic – you know, we've got another in-state tournament that's really great, and IU and Purdue don't play each other, but they get to play by the Lord of Notre Dame every year, which I really like personally. Yeah. So, so it's cool. No, I, I think I think I think the rivalry is back on. I think it's a respectful rivalry, which hasn't always been the case. Yeah. <laughs> you want to talk Bob Knight's TV show? Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Remember that. Yeah, yeah. So, so look, I mean, it's it's a, uh, I think it's a healthy rivalry. Matt Painter's a you know a guy that I've known. From the recruiting tail on the trail on one line, and, and Matt's always been great to me, you know. And uh, obviously, as I said, I, I mentioned Archie, I, you know. So, and Tom Green was always very gracious to me too. But uh, I think the programs are in very good hands right now. Uh, I, I think, you know, Purdue. It was, it, was a, it was a big deal that they got their point guard back. You know, they, you know, he he, he toyed with going to the to the NBA, but he's back. You know, Juwan Morgan's coming back for IU too. Mm-hmm. Once again, somebody who thought about turning pro or maybe even going to Europe or whatever. So uh, it's going to be really interesting. I mean, I, I think Indiana and Purdue are both close to 
top 25, if not top 25, going into the season. And I think that's going to be perpetuated in upcoming seasons. I really think, once again, I mean, when, you, when, when you're talking Knight and Katie, we're talking two of the very greatest coaches that ever coached in either of those institutions. Yeah. But I really like the guys that are in place right now, and I really think it's going to be fun. I do. And I think it's going to be fun for the basketball fans in the state. For the, in the upcoming years, and the uh, the football teams too. Yeah, you know, I mean, obviously Purdue made a great hire. I think with Jeff, and I'm a big, big Tom Allen fan. The Jeff Brown up there, you know, I mean, he, there are people are already trying to hire him away from. Yeah, they do. Oh, they, yeah, they, <laughs> yeah. Trying, they just I mean, try. You know, he, he he clearly resurrected things in a hurry. You know, went from you know aptly abject kind of nadir in program history to like winning a bowl game like overnight. Yeah. So that was really impressive. Tom Allen, damn near, you know, I mean, it, it, it's it's like miracle work. I mean, Indiana was horrible on defense for like time in memorial. It, it, well, that's not quite true, but I mean, ever since the Mallory years, Indiana had been not just bad, I mean, just wretchedly, abjectly awful, historically awful, worst in the country kind of stuff like ranking 124th out of 126 Division I, that kind of stuff, hmm. on defense for years, for decades. And Tom Allen came in here and like, poof. And in the last year, Indiana was a top 25 defense. So, I mean, we got two coaches there now, too, where, you know, once again, there are no guarantees and we don't know how it's going to work out. Winning football in Indiana, that's a tough nut to crack. But do I think Tom Allen's incapable of cracking it? No. I think he's capable. If we don't know how things are going to go, this is a really important season coming up for Tom, I think, too. It's only his second full-time season. But once again, it's a results-oriented uh, you know, profession. And Tom used the word disappointing to talk about last year when they finished 5-7. and seven, And they should have and could have maybe done a little better. So he wants to do better. And he, you know, so I, th- this is a really interesting football season. And I, I, you know, local people are interested. Most of the time, if I'm going into an IU football season, I feel pretty confident about a range where I think they are. You know, like I think these guys are like a six and six team or whatever. I'm usually pretty confident about where I think they are. I look at the schedule. I look at what they got back on paper. I know a lot of the players. I know what I think the coaching staff does and all that kind of stuff. And it's just my opinion. But I've been covering these, you know, this program for 30 years. I mean, I have a fairly this team. I have a hard time. I have a hard time telling you what I think this team is going to do. I think they're they're capable of anything from four and eight to eight and four, and and, and which which end of that they're going to be closer on. I really don't know. Too many intangibles. There's too many intangibles. There's going to be a new quarterback. He might be really good. He may not be. You know, or or if they go back to the kid that played last year and started four or five games as a redshirt freshman, maybe he'll be a lot better this year. I don't know. But they, they, they lost a lot on defense into graduation. But I actually really like the talent that they have replacing those starters. I actually think it might be a faster, more talented defense this year. Maybe not a linebacker, but just about every place else. Hmm. So, so it's, it's a really interesting dynamic. I, I, I think I find it fascinating. I don't always find preseason prognosticating fascinating. Normally I have a pretty good notion Got a reasonably good handle on what I think Indiana's going to be. This year's really, really fascinating to me because I don't know which way it's going to be. Very good. Well, 
I just have to say thank you very much for taking the time to uh, to talk to us. Hopefully, we'll get another chance here down the road, maybe continue because I know I have definitely more stuff that we didn't end up getting to. Oh, thank you. It's been a real pleasure, and uh, I, I tend to prattle on, and and I think that. As I said, editors had to deal with that with my writing too. <laughs> I could I could get pretty voluminous pretty quickly, but I, but I appreciate it. Thanks I, very much. I can't speak for everybody, but I know that's the kind of thing that I like uh, when I was studying with the degree that I have. Uh, uh, one of my favorite things to learn about was Mark Twain and the 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 tours that he would do and and essentially just the stories that he would tell and that's what people wanted they wanted to, to see those stories and you still get that now even with people like uh, Kevin Smith uh, uh, mm -hmm. he does the same things I've, I've went to see him a couple of times for the exact same reasons he tells stories and that connects and hopefully it will connect with uh, I think yeah. I, I, I'm a big Twain fan you know he uh, for a lot of reasons but uh, for example he facilitated the memoirs of Ulysses S. Grant, which is one of the great historical memoirs in, in our nation's history. Mm -hmm. if, if people have never read them, they should. Grant was wonderful. I'm a big Grant fan. Mm -hmm. uh, he, he's somebody who's an American hero, who along with, obviously, Abraham Lincoln, over and above everybody else at that time period, and he's the greatest president in our history, and he was the greatest man, uh, prominent person at that time. But Grant, Grant's, uh, Grant's is a right-hand man kind of hero that time. And I know that people criticized him for some of the corruption, that, especially in his second uh, uh, administration as, as president. Uh, but that didn't touch him personally, and it was not, not, his, not his doing. Mm -hmm. uh, but Grant, Grant's awesome. I mean, Grant, Grant's, if you read his memoirs, they're eloquent, they're, they're, they're perceptive. Uh, it isn't just dry military history. There's a lot there. There's a great quote. I'm going to paraphrase it here. And Twain helped. Do it. Grant got swindled by a, a family member who was a, a, a financial guy, and so all his, his entire family savings were gone, basically. So he wrote his memoirs to provide for his family because he was dying of throat cancer, and he, he needed to provide for his family. And his friend Mark Twain helped help facilitate that. Yeah. Help orchestrate it. But Grant, for example, said this. You know, he was praising the valor of the Army of Northern Virginia and the, the Confederates who had fought so long and so hard for their cause. Uh, so at Appomattox, once the surrender was finalized, some impromptu celebrations were erupting among the Union troops. And he put the kibosh on that really quickly. He said, no, 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 no. We are not going to celebrate the downfall of our foe. They're fellow Americans. They are our countrymen. And they fought long and hard and so valiantly and with so much sacrifice for a cause in which they believed uh, with every fervor and every, every part of their body. Even though they fought for a cause for which I think, uh, one of the worst causes for which men ever fought and one for which I think there is the least excuse. And I'm paraphrasing it, but that, that's basically the, 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 the quote from Grant. So that gives you a notion of how thoughtful, and even if, whether you agree with him or not, is a very, understand very, man. A yep. very nuanced, very, very thoughtful memoir, and it's, and it's awesome. So, you know, for all the other great stuff about Twain, I mean, maybe our greatest, <laughs> greatest humorist, 
there's that. And, and, and once again, it's great social commentary, too. Absolutely. But, but there was also the fact that he facilitated Grant's memoirs, which is one of the great treasures that we have, in my view. Because as I said before, if, if one doesn't really understand that war and the reasons why it happened and the ramifications of it, then one doesn't really have a very good handle on this country and what it really is. Absolutely. Well said. Well, putting people. Hopefully we will... Uh, Hear, uh, hear some more uh, stories, uh, like I said, down the road. And until then, uh, we will talk to you later. Thanks. Thank you.